The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. All right, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Bob Gonzalez, and I'm going to be teaching Sunday school this morning. And um, as I was trying to think about a topic, I was reminded that in two weeks from tomorrow, uh, we'll be commemorating a very uh, impacting event that took place a little over 20 years ago. Does anyone recall what that event would be? Known by the date September 11th. Okay. Um, the, uh, the terrorist attack uh, against the, the Twin Towers in Manhattan, the Pentagon, and so on. Many of you remember that. That was a very uh, remarkable event in American life. And I remember back then, uh, many Americans began to discuss Islam and the beliefs of the Quran. And interestingly, around that time, there were many people making comparisons with Islam and the Bible. There was an article on NPR in 2010 entitled, Is the Bible More Violent Than the Quran? And the author argued in the affirmative. And so he was trying to link uh, the violence of the Muslim terrorists that was exemplified in September 11, 2001, with the violence that we find perpetrated and even in some cases prescribed in our Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. So as you can imagine, when those sorts of comparisons came out, there were many Christians that sort of came out and sought to give contrasts. They wanted to distance themselves from the violence of the Quran. And uh, I remember one article in particular entitled, Christian or Muslim, What's the Difference? And uh, the Lutheran scholar, let me see if I can get these slides going here. Hold on a minute. Okay, here we go. I think. Okay, but that's not what I want. Okay. Now my controls aren't working. Hold on a minute. Let me try something. Okay. Hmm. Somebody was just up here asking me, how do you like the apple? I love it. Had all those problems with the PC, got rid of that thing. This thing's been great. Okay, okay, hold on. I'm going to get it here. 
Okay. All right, now. Voila. All right, comes back with a bang. Um, so there was an article written by a Lutheran scholar. His name is Alvin Schmidt, entitled Christian or Muslim, What's the Difference? And in that article, Schmidt argued, and I quote, Jihad is totally contrary to what Christ taught when he told Peter to put away his sword or when he told individuals to turn the other cheek. Unlike Muslims, Christians have no command to advance their religion by killing unbelievers. Just the opposite. Now, many of us would agree with that, but... The problem with the article is not so much what Dr. Schmidt says, it's what he leaves unsaid. Many Christian apologists, like Dr. Schmidt, what they do is they fail to point out the fact that in the Old Testament particularly, there are many passages which seem to condone violence. They point to the gentleness of Christ but they fail to acknowledge that there are many passages in the Old Testament where God actually commands the Israelites to use violence against entire populations of people in order to gain control of Palestine. Let me just give you a few examples. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Moses writes, when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. And then in Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, God says, in the the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then look what he says, as Yahweh your God has commanded. And then take this passage, occurs a little bit later in the Old Testament, book of Samuel. Samuel says to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel, therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." There are other passages we could look at, such as Exodus 23, Exodus 34, Numbers 31. So, in light of such biblical injunctions, how how may we contrast biblical religion with the violent 
tendencies of Islam. Even if we limit the divine injunctions to an earlier stage of redemptive history, we still have to justify their presence in a Bible which we claim to be inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And so how can the, the, how can the Christian theologically and ethically justify God's command to kill the Canaanites? And that's the question I want to explore in the remainder of our Sunday school class. So to do this, I want to develop our topic under four headings. First, the ethical problem identified. Secondly, some inadequate solutions examined. Thirdly, a biblical apology offered. And then fourthly, some practical lessons highlighted. By biblical apology, I obviously don't mean that we're going to, you know, say that we're sorry. This is in the Bible, but we're going to seek to defend its presence there. Okay, so let's first of all then identify the ethical problem. And the first thing I want you to do is to note that these texts do not merely describe what Israel did or failed to do but they record what God prescribed for Israel to do. So we can't just assign this to the sinful and vengeful actions of the Israelites. We can't blame them. Obviously, the Israelites, many of them were uncircumcised of heart. They did many sinful things. And we acknowledge that. That's no problem. The problem is the fact that these passages represent God as commanding the Israelites to do it. Secondly, God does not merely prescribe the execution of adult males, but also of women, children, and in some cases, animals. And so God's command applies not only to those who might pose a military threat to Israel. We can understand that. You know, kill all the soldiers, kill the adult males. We can understand that in a sense in the context of war. But also, he commands them to exterminate those who seem to be relatively innocent and harmless. And it's not really an adequate solution to the problem to claim that this is just a case of chest-pounding ancient Near Eastern rhetoric. That's what some scholars do. They say, well, you know, they're just using the language of hyperbole. Man, woman, child, infant, so on. That's just hyperbole. They don't really mean that to be serious. But... God could resort to other forms of rhetoric that would be less potentially confusing or misleading. He could have just said, wipe out all the males. All of them. Every single one. But he doesn't. He says, male and female. Child and infant. There might have been a little hyperbole in that, but still. These are his marching 
orders. So I don't think that it's adequate to say, well, this is hyperbole and God doesn't really mean it. So at face value, God's command seems to encourage unwarranted aggression and violence, which are violations of the sixth commandment, as well as the theft of property, which is a violation of the eighth commandment. Furthermore, his command to kill every man, woman, and child seems to be at variance with the Old and New Testament teaching that we should love our enemies, do good to them, pray for them, and also the stipulation that every soul shall be judged for his own sin and not for the sins of others. So these seeming ethical tensions and violations are what have led some critics and opponents of Christianity to attack the Old Testament. For example, Geard Ludeman, a former theologian who became an atheist, views the command to exterminate the Canaanites as extremely offensive. And then Richard Dawkins, a proponent of evolution and apologist for atheism, writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. And he got that from reading these passages. And then even Stephen Davis, who is an evangelical scholar, does not believe the so-called Old Testament holy wars can be justified, and therefore he can't accept God's command in these cases is inspired revelation. He writes, I speak for no one except myself, but I believe that killing innocent people is morally wrong. I frankly find it difficult to believe that it was God's will that every Canaanite be slaughtered. Since the Bible clearly says that this was God's will, I must conclude that the biblical writers in this case were mistaken. And this is one reason why Dr. Davis has to come up with a theory of inspiration, that parts of the Bible are inspired and other parts of the Bible are not. Well, let's look at some inadequate solutions. Of course, you all know that Marcion had a solution. He was a second century heretic, and his solution was to just get rid of the whole Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament's violent, unlike the heavenly father of the New Testament. So let's just throw the whole Old Testament out. And unfortunately, that option is not open to you and I, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he did not throw the whole Old Testament out. He did not unhitch himself from Moses and the prophets. Neither should we. So how can we justify these things? How can we offer solutions? Well, here are four solutions commonly offered by Bible scholars. The first one is this. Some suggest that Israel falsely attributed their actions to God's command in order to justify their aggression. So one Princeton scholar, for example, Patrick Miller, he writes, 
underneath Israel's highly elaborate theology of election and promise, there was hidden the concrete and urgent fact that the people needed land and elbow room and they need it fast. So it's kind of like, you know, Hitler justified invading Eastern Europe because they needed more elbow room. They needed living space. And, uh, or it might be analogous to some of the early American uh, colonists who justified taking land from the Indians because, well, God had called them. That was their manifest destiny. Um, and uh, not saying that all of them were wrong in the way that they colonized America, but there were some that were. There was a lot of treaty breaking and so on. And uh, so that's one solution. Obviously, that's not a solution we would adopt because that solution really calls into question the character of Scripture. Another solution argues that the holy wars in the Old Testament are what we might call ideological propaganda that was promoted by later kings in Judah. Let me explain. One popular trend in Old Testament scholarship is to argue that the book of Moses was written much later than what the Bible depicts. Like during the time maybe of David and Solomon, it began to be written. And then by the time you get to King Josiah, you have this discovery that takes place in the temple. What do they discover? The book of the covenant, Deuteronomy. Well, in fact, these scholars argue that wasn't discovered. That was produced. And why was it produced? Well, it was produced in order that Josiah might consolidate all of Israel under his power by producing that document that seemed as if God had given them the land, all the land of Israel, and they were to claim it as their own. Well, uh, obviously that's not a good uh, option for the believer because, again, we're left with a Bible that is in some sense uh, endorsing political lies. So that's not a good option. Thirdly, there are evangelical scholars that argue that the holy wars of the Old Testament simply reflect the reality that God must work in a sinful world with sinful people. In the words of uh, Peter Craigie, a professed evangelical scholar, and I quote, war is never less than unmitigated evil, and its frequent mention in the Old Testament does not elevate its character. It is a form of evil human activity through which God in his sovereign uh, purpose may work out his purposes and judgment and redemption. So in other words, in Craigie's view, the holy wars were a matter of God's providence, but not a matter of God's precept. Now what's the problem with that view? Well, again, I think to myself, Dr. Craigie, you are a Hebrew scholar. You know the difference between an indicative and an imperative. 
Again, the text is not describing what the Israelites did, or in some cases failed to do, but what God commanded them to do. Okay, so again, that scholar is not, or that solution is not really open to the Christian. And then fourthly, this is kind of an older solution. Some of the early church fathers insisted that the commands and that the violence of the Old Testament should be interpreted in a spiritual and not a literal or physical sense. So for example, Origen and Gregory of Nyssa interpreted the narratives allegorically. Joshua, they said, is just a reference to Christ. The Canaanites refer to temptation and sin. The call to engage in holy war is not a call, they would say, to wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in heavenly places. And so the book of Joshua, they would argue, is sort of a manual for Christian sanctification. Now, there's an element of truth in this view as we're going to see. It is the case that the divine commands and physical battles depicted in the Old Testament do convey many spiritual lessons for us. Nevertheless, this allegorical approach tends to downplay the historicity of the Old Testament. It treats it more or less like Pilgrim's Progress. All right? Pilgrim's Progress is a great book, conveys much spiritual truth, but it's not real history. We don't want to treat the Old Testament that way. So that's not an adequate solution. And that leads me then thirdly to a biblical apology offered. How can you and I adequately defend the presence of these holy wars and the commands to holy war? How can we defend their presence in the Bible? Well, to begin with, we have to make sure that our underlying framework, our presupposition, so to speak, we have to make sure that that's biblical. As one writer has observed, the life situation and presuppositions of the reader profoundly affect the way in which the text is interpreted. And so I want to begin by reminding you of the context of these commands Then I want to look at the nature of these commands. And then thirdly, several arguments to justify these commands. So let's consider, first of all, briefly the context. The context of this command is a sinful world under the wrath of God. Now, if we remember that, then all of a sudden the question shifts It's no longer, why would God exterminate the Canaanites, but rather, why has God withheld judgment from so many other sinful nations, including our own? Why are we still here? Why has God waited thousands and thousands of years and hasn't yet judged the nations? For their evil. You and I are wrestling with this right now. We see evil permeating our society, and we wonder why does God continue to allow the United States to exist? That's the context. 
a sinful world under the wrath of God. Furthermore, God's promise to redeem the world necessitates the destruction and removal of evil. So when you and I pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How's that going to be fulfilled? How's his kingdom going to come? How's his will going to be done? Unless he removes evil. He's got to do that. Okay? So that's the context. Consider the nature, the nature of God's calls to holy war. First of all, we can look at these holy wars as divinely authorized capital punishment on a societal scale. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 9, God authorizes the state to execute capital punishment upon evildoers? So in a similar but more unique sense, he doesn't do this all the time. This is very unique. But he does, in this case, authorize the nation Israel to carry out his punitive sentence upon the Canaanite nations of Palestine. Do you remember, by the way, what God had said to Abraham when he made his promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15? He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they, that is your descendants, shall come back here to Palestine in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God says, I'm going to execute capital punishment on the Canaanites but not yet. Remember, God's a patient God, not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. He's going to give them 400 more years. They were already wicked. They already deserve judgment, but God says, I'm going to wait another 400 years. Okay? But when those 400 years are up, your descendants will inherit the land, and they will carry out my judgment on its inhabitants. Okay, so divinely authorized capital punishment on a societal scale. Secondly, holy war may be viewed as a means by which God would fulfill his promise of land to Abraham and his descendants. Remember, repeatedly, God says, I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the land to you and to your descendants. And remember that if the seed of the woman are to experience God's blessing, then the seed of the serpent must be crushed. God must evict the Canaanites from Canaan. And so uh, we might say that redemption in that case is going to necessitate judgment. And then thirdly, God's command may be viewed as a divinely sanctioned religious duty calling for Israel's faith and obedience. 
Interestingly, those passages calling for holy war employ a Hebrew term, harem, which is kind of the flip side of the term to sanctify. Walter Kaiser writes, the root idea of this term was separation. However, this situation was not the positive concept of sanctification in which someone or something is set aside for service and for the glory of God. This was the opposite side of the same coin, to set aside for or to separate for destruction. And so, when God was calling on Israel to exterminate the Canaanites, he was calling upon them to engage in religious activity, religious service. As one scholar puts it, battle in the Old Testament is portrayed as an act of worship. I mean, think about the measure of faith and obedience God was calling for when he said, I want you to carry out this command. You really would have to trust and obey. And that's what God was calling for. So that's the nature of the command. Now let's look at the justification for God's calls to holy war. And the first thing I want to highlight here is that the Canaanites had known about Yahweh's redemptive acts on behalf of Israel for many years. When the spies show up to Jericho and they interact with Rahab, she says, hey, look, we've been hearing about you for a long time. And part of what they heard about was the fact that God was going to give the Israelites the land of Canaan. And so my point is that they had an opportunity to repent Rahab did repent, you remember, and she was spared. But the Canaanites as a whole did not repent, and they therefore stood under the just condemnation of God. Secondly, the Bible teaches, as does the light of nature, the principle of corporate solidarity, whereby the actions of an individual may affect the community for good or for evil. You recall in Joshua 7, 36 Israelite soldiers died at Ai because of Achan's sin. So Achan's sin affected other people. More significantly, we read in Romans chapter 5, through the sin of one man, Adam, sin and death came into the world. And so, corporate solidarity is a principle whereby the sins of some will affect the many. And again, you and I experience this on a regular basis. There are decisions made in Washington that continually affect us, whether we like it or not. Thirdly, Yahweh's command to execute the Canaanites was limited. Now, this is important. This is often overlooked in this discussion. It was limited to those Canaanites who refused to comply with God's eviction notice. Remember, one option they had was to leave. 
they could have left. In fact, um, we need to keep in mind that the more immediate objective Yahweh gave to Israel was, and I quote, to drive them out. Repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I want you to drive them out. I want you to drive them out. In fact, in some cases, God actually sent hornets to help the Israelites get the job done. So that was an option. You didn't have to face execution. You could have just left. But if you refuse to leave, if you refuse to be evicted, then you faced judgment. Which brings me to the fourth justification. God's love for his people and his desire to maintain their purity required the preventative excision of that which would inevitably corrupt their devotion to the true religion. Repeatedly, God says, I don't want you to be making covenants with them. Why? Well, because they're going to lead you back into idolatry. They're going to corrupt your devotion to me. So you have to drive them out, and if they won't get out, you have to destroy them. And this is necessary, God says, because otherwise they're going to become like cancer that spreads throughout the community of Israel and brings about judgment on Israel itself. One scholar puts it this way. He says, divine love is like a two-edged sword. So think of God as kind of like the surgeon who has to remove the tumor. And then fifthly, we must remember that Israel's holy war against Canaan is a redemptive historical type of spiritual and eschatological warfare. You might think of the holy wars in Canaan as a kind of a type of last day judgment that intrudes into human history. Meredith Klein puts it this way. The conquest was not, as it is so often stigmatized, an instance in the ethical sphere of arrested evolution... What he means by arrested evolution there is, is that, uh, that the popular Old Testament theory is that, you know, you had these very primitive humans that went around killing each other like, you know, carnivore, carnivore animals kill other animals for food and all of that. And uh, the idea is that religion was a form of, of evolution in which we're sort of progressing to a higher ethical sphere and we're, we're, we're all beginning to treat each other nicely uh, but they would say oh but here's an instance where we kind of revert back to our animal like nature and Meredith Klein saying no no that's not what it is rather it's an instance of anticipated eschatology so just as Peter could say look at the flood that was a foretaste of what's going to come. So too, we can look at these wars in Canaan 
And we can say that's a foretaste of what is to come. Because when Christ returns, he will leave no survivors. No survivors, that is. None who refuse to bow their knee to him. And then finally, now here's, by the way, where we do come back to where Dr. Schmidt began. The holy war in the Old Testament was limited to corrupt and hardened sinners within the parameters of Canaan and was provisional and temporary in nature. And so in this case, yes, it does differ from Islamic jihad. Muhammad, the false prophet, says jihad is a perpetual conflict that will not end until every knee bows to Allah. Jesus, the final and greatest prophet, says that he's going to operate by a different modus operandi. He's not going to follow Muhammad's methodology. He puts it this way. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And so as a result, you and I, brothers and sisters, march to the sound of a different drum. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. Notice notice this. For not with swords loud clashing nor roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. So, When placed under the light to the overall teaching of Scripture, the theological and ethical problem of the Old Testament holy wars is not so formidable after all. In the end, those who have a serious problem with the Old Testament holy wars probably have a serious problem with God himself. Because God is holy, and God will hold sinners accountable for their sin, and he will judge all men eventually at the last day. What are some spiritual lessons or practical lessons that we as a church can learn from these holy wars? Well, God's commands to holy war remind us to be preeminently concerned with God's honor and rights above mere human honor and rights. And and we need to sound this note today and be unashamed of it. Everybody's arguing about human rights, our rights. What about God's rights? We need to insist on that. Secondly, God's commands to holy war remind us of the seriousness with which God views human sin. God takes it very, very seriously. And just because God is patient, that's not an indication that God takes sin lightly. Thirdly, 
God's commands to holy war remind us that the consequences of sin often extend beyond the individual to the family, to the church, and to society. And that should make us very sober and serious about the way in which we take our own sin because our sins will affect others. Fourthly, God's commands to holy war remind us of the dangerous influences of an anti-Christian society around us. God, God did not want the Israelites to be corrupted by the influence of the Canaanites. And we have to beware of that as well. Now, God doesn't take us out of the world. He's left us in the society in order to be salt and light. Nevertheless, we need to beware of the corrupting influence of the society around us. Fifthly, God's commands to holy war remind us how zealous God is to protect true religion. And this is sort of related to the point I just made. Uh, Jesus says one place, will the Son of Man find uh, faith when he returns on the earth? And uh, so we see here that God is very zealous to protect true religion. Sixthly, God's commands to holy war remind us of the serious commitment to his word that God expects from his people. So just as God expected the Israelites, carry out this command. God knew it was hard for them to trust and obey, but he says, I want you to do it. Well, God hasn't changed, folks. Now, thankfully, at least I'm thankful, I I don't want to have to go around and run people through with swords. I'm thankful that's not the command God's given me, but God has commanded me to run the sword through my sins. And he wants me to take that very seriously. God's commanded me to share the gospel with the lost. God's commanded me to love my neighbor, so on and so forth. He wants me to take those commands seriously. And dear friend, if you're here today and, and, and there are parts of the Bible that you just don't feel comfortable with, nevertheless, they are clear duties that God is imposing upon you. Please understand how you feel about those really ultimately doesn't matter. God wants you to take his word seriously. Seven. God's commands to holy war provide us with a picture of our spiritual battle against remaining sin, the world, and the devil. And so we can say that the early church fathers had a point. Okay, You and I have to be ruthless in our battle against remaining sin. We must show no mercy. Be killing sin, says John Owen, or sin will be killing you. And then eighthly, Two more. God's commands to holy war as localized and provisional provide a contrast with the kind of New Testament holy war that's been authorized by our great prophet, Jesus Christ. Okay? So don't think holy wars have ceased. We're called to holy war. But holy war of a different kind. As Paul says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And the Lord Jesus Christ, our great prophet, has said, I want you to go out into all the world, and I want you, by the preaching of the gospel, to take every thought captive to me. 
And then finally, God's commands to holy war provide us with a foretaste of that ultimate battle between Christ and all the minions of evil yet to come. And uh, you guys may be aware of the fact that in the book of Revelation, where the smoke of the torment of those judged by God for refusing to bow the knee to Christ provides the occasion for that famous hallelujah chorus where the saints are going to be forever praising God for his righteous judgments against the wicked. So the holy wars of the Old Testament are sort of a foretaste of that, dear friends. Well, those are some and I can share these with you later if you want to do further study on this topic. This is a topic, by the way, that comes up quite a bit, especially with young people go off to college. Sometimes professors want to try to undermine their faith in Scripture. This is one of the parts of Scripture that always gets picked on. Um, but these are some di- different uh, resources you can turn to to help you with this. Well, I can maybe take one question. Our time is about up. Pastor Fries. Mm. He won the war by, by putting his wrath on Christ. Mm. Mm. Amen, amen. And so, yeah, you know, it's one thing to think about somebody says, well, I got a problem with God killing Canaanites. Well, think of the fact that God the Father put his son, his innocent son on the cross. Why did he do it? For our sin, for our sin. Well, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this study, and we thank you for your word. There are some hard sayings in the scripture. We admit that. We don't try to, we don't try to soften them, but we don't want to be like those professed disciples who left Jesus because they became offended at those hard sayings. Rather, by faith, we want to trust your word and take it seriously and realize, Lord, that You are a God of mercy and you haven't judged the whole world up to this point because you're still waiting for people to repent of their sins and to turn to you in mercy. And so we pray, Lord, that we would do that very thing and that we would encourage others to do the same. And we ask your blessing on the rest of our worship today in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.